and welcome back to We Made a Beer, the podcast in which we, two beer novices, find out about beer by brewing it, drinking it and chatting to some super cool folks about it. So we're on to episode five, everyone, which means we're nearing the end of our first ever podcast series. This week has been one of our favourite episodes to put together. We talk with Jen Merrick, head brewer at the amazing Beavertown Brewery. I did have a weird idea once that I thought I could work tomatoes into a beer and I tried a couple of different like substrates for the fermentation when I did a, a stout and a, a pale and it didn't really work out either way. We also talk about the importance of diversifying beer drinkers with Neil from the There's a Beer for That campaign. We love to see the industry move away from uh, barbecue, beaches and, and babes. Sorry for the expression, but it's, it's literally that's the kind of advertising we've had and start to talk about the quality, diversity and versatility and the heritage of, of beer. And whilst researching our next beer, we somehow stumble upon a relatively unknown brewery in West Virginia. What? Wow, Licking Hole Creek. Licking Hole Creek. That's an awful name. Wow, somebody actually thought of that name and then it's from Goochland in Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> no. Licking Hole Creek Saison from Goochland. Beautiful. This is the best day of my life. <laughs> if you've only just joined We Made a Beer and missed the premise of our show, we've been making this podcast series alongside the lovely folks at YouBrew, an open brewery where you brew the beer. In episode one, we chatted to the co-founders and taught you how to brew. Last week, we made a wheat beer. And do you know what? It was pretty damn good. Here's how it went down. You did a really good job. This is really clean. Uh, very much kind of got those spicy, wheezy flavours that you're looking for. Yeah, it's just really well brewed. If you bought that in a pub, you'd be, be well chuffed. So super happy with the result on that one. Great success. But before we brewed the wheat beer, we were faced with a difficult decision of going for traditional wheat beer or a wit beer, which is infused with coriander and orange. Now, one of the reasons we went with the traditional wheat, aside from my personal hatred of coriander, was because this week is our infusing week. Regular listeners to the podcast will know that our mate Tash is a brewing assistant at YouBrew. When we first met her back in episode two, she told us she was renowned at YouBrew for doing something a little bit different with her brews. She's also put up with us coming in every week and haranguing her with question after question about various different beers. So it's only fair we include her speciality in this series, the weird beer. Now, the infused beer is fun. It kind of means you get to throw away the rule book. You've not got a solid idea as to the outcome of your brew before you do it, because what you infuse it with can hugely alter the recipe predictions. But when there's so much choice of what style of beer to infuse and what with, it's tricky to know where to start. So we did a tasting session with Tash to work out what we liked, what we fancied the idea of, and so on. We took three infused beers from Pressure Drop, Beavertown, and also a really interesting wild beer collaboration brew off to you brew for a tasting session, starting with Pressure Drop. <laughs> Woo Gang chops the tree. All right, cool. Foraged herb, Hefeweizen. 3.8%. That's good. We've already had a couple. <laughs> cool. Neat label, too. Well, that smells great. It smells a bit like a roast dinner. Yeah, you can smell the thyme. Mm. We have a thyme saison in the fridge that people often say, yeah, it smells like roast potatoes. It's not as herby as I expected it to taste based on the, on the aroma. I think the issue with um, infusing wheat beers with kind of anything, really, especially de delicate things like herbs, is that the wheat beer yeast is so flavourful and does so much that it can often overshadow 
infusions I made a lemon ginger wheat beer and I used I think like four times the amount of ginger that any recipe I was looking at was calling for because I wanted it to be really really gingery I think my mistake was using using wheat beer yeast because it, I got all of that banana wheat beer flavour but I didn't get a lot of the other stuff coming through so this might be what's happened with this one maybe they've gone down the people pleaser route like maybe people do kind of find it a bit weird if it's too much herb yeah yeah and that's the thing I think that's kind of the rule of thumb with gimmicky beers is you're better off going lower and ending up with a beer that is kind of true to the style with a subtle hint of something infused as opposed to overpowering it with you know if this just tastes like a roast dinner you're right it wouldn't be a people pleaser Shall we finish off our large glass of Wugang? Next up. This is Beaver Town. Bloody hell. Blood orange IPA. Right, let's crack open. Ooh. Smell divine. Higher. This is a boozy one as well. 7.2. Gosh. It's very early in the day, ladies. <laughs> um, so if we were to make a blood orange IPA, mm-hmm. I assume you're not using the juice, you're using um, the peel. Um, there's kind of two ways of doing it, actually. You could add the peel to the boil, like a hop. You could also do, um, which uh, one of our members did, uh, he used the juice from blood oranges as his priming sugar. So priming sugar is what you add to uh, fermented beer before you bottle it. So instead of using sugar, he used blood orange juice, which obviously is is full of fruit sugars, um, to carbonate it, but also to to flavour it. You do one or both. So shall we move on to the third beer that we've got? I'm very excited about this. Schnulpip. As well as having a really lovely name, what else has this beer got in store for us? Let's see. Grain, spices, yeast, wood, fruit, flowers. Broad term. Isn't it? As is wood. (laughs) (laughs) Somerset Sharp and Park Spelt um, has been used for a full body. Pink peppercorns give a gentle sweet spiciness. Saison and Brettanomyces yeast strains lead to a dry spicy character, so it's sour. Um, Wood aging in French red wine barrels for three months. Gosh, passion fruit. Dude, that's fucking awesome. It's incredible as well for a beer that has so many things in it to to be able to taste all of them individually. Normally those things will be fighting with each other or one would be overpowering, but you really, you can. You can taste all of them individually. So we've had the pressure drop Wu Gang Chops the Tree, uh, which is like a quite herby, quite light flavoured sort of infused beer. We've had the Beaver Town Bloody Ale Blood Orange IPA, which was really, really hoppy with a really nice kind of blood orangey sort of flavour to it. Um, and then we've had this wild beer, Burning Sky and Fork Brewing kind of collaboration beer, Schnudelpip, um, which was incredibly complex, loads and loads of different flavours and loads of stuff that we probably couldn't do here because we don't have the means for it, but we would love to do it in an ideal world. Um, what kind of thing can we do? So if we just list loads of things that we like, can we somehow develop a recipe based on stuff we like and the fact that we like beer? Absolutely, absolutely. You start listing things, I'll tell you whether it works or whether, whether it won't. So, I like sausages. We could do a smoked beer. Smoked beer? Often smoked beer does taste like, like bacon or sausages. Yeah. It's kind of meaty. Probably oh. not a sausage beer. Okay. Potatoes. Potatoes are quite good, aren't they? Anything else? Gravy. Gravy. <laughs> Gravy. I'm just going to say no straight up. Okay. I'm going to give you a reason. <laughs> I mean, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Let's be Bye. serious about this now. <laughs> does rosemary ever go in a beer? I'm sure it has. So if someone's done lemon and thyme, why don't we do lime and rosemary lime based and rosemary. on that mantra? What, what do you want your base beer to be? Do you want it to be saison, perhaps? We haven't Ooh. done a saison. Saisons mm. are quite good as base beers for infusion. Saisons, by themselves, have a bit of, like, a Belgian flavour, but they're not wildly all over the show taste-wise, so they're quite good for infusing. We're always an advocate of Belgian beers, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yes, sold. Saison. All right, so what are we doing? Rosemary and 
mime. Cool. See, it just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? It doesn't at all. <laughs> Not mine, anyway. <laughs> no. So are we looking we Old look. Faithful Internet to see if anyone yeah. has done Rosemary and Lime? Licking Hole Creek, Rosemary Saison. What? Wow, Licking Hole Creek. Licking Hole Creek. That's an awful name. Wow, somebody actually thought of that name and then it's from Goochland in Virginia. <laughs> 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 Licking Hole Creek Saison from Goochland. <laughs> Beautiful. This is the best day of my life. <laughs> Apart from Licking Hole Creek, is there anything else that you can find online? Not a great deal. There's a few homebrew recipes. People have tried it out. Yeah. But, um... I don't know if I'm that on board. <laughs> okay, well, if we're not on board, we can't do it. Well, okay, let's, why, don't we, why don't we list some more things? Because I feel like we stopped quite prematurely. We okay. didn't really get very far, did we? Okay, the Saison, I want to have a go at, because that sounds fantastic. So should that be maybe, I think, I feel fruity might be a... So the base is Saison. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Mangoes, those are quite good. Gooseberry. Yeah. Mango, gooseberry, Saison. All right. It'll be fun. How There's do you feel about that? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm happy with that. So mango and gooseberry. Gooseberry? Yeah, Don't know how to say that. Um, it's all well and good suggesting you, you it. Can go okay, are we going to gooseberries. <laughs> <laughs> we used to grow gooseberries in the in the um, back garden, but they got stolen one year. Outrageous. That's Someone austerity, like, isn't it? When people steal your gooseberries. Like on mass though, there was a load of gooseberries out there. We we're going to make a fool, and they just there was a mass gooseberry theft in Yorkshire. Anyway, you can get gooseberries in the UK, is what I'm saying. There <laughs> <laughs> no, we got there. <laughs> so we're going to sauce some gooseberries, we're going to mix it with some mango, we're going to have a base of saison. It's going to be a delicious beer. Wonderful. Cool. And there you go. The idea was born for a gooseberry and mango saison. The plan is we're going to dry hop our saison with tinned gooseberries and then use mango puree alongside priming sugar to carbonate the beers when we bottle. Last week, Nigel Owen, owner of many of London's best beer haunts, told us he was a little concerned that the beer industry isn't doing enough to modernise. And we ourselves have noticed that some of the taprooms we've been visiting don't have the most diverse of demographics. So, while Lucy tried to track down tinned gooseberries, which, by the way, is very tricky, (laughs) I headed off to visit Jen Merrick, head brewer at Beavertown, to chat about how it feels to be one of not that many female head brewers and what it's like working for a company that is helping to modernise the industry. I started by asking her how she got into brewing. I always fancied beer and brewing, and where I grew up in the US, there was a kind of craft beer culture from the time that I was very young there. So I think Americans in the first wave of craft beer, like back in the 90s, were were very enamoured of the traditional beer cultures of Europe, and I thought, I really fancy learning this, this cascale bit. So about 10 years ago, I guess, I started in beer in the UK and studied traditional British brewing methods and did about four years in a cascale brewery in York before I moved back to London and there weren't really very many breweries in the South at that time. Uh, I had to commute out of London actually to work for Darkstar in Sussex but then all of these breweries started cropping up around London and I was lucky enough to meet Logan and just sort of right place right time. I always ask everyone that we talk to to talk us through the range. Obviously Beavertown's got a massive range so we can either just Stick to the core ones, or you can go through the whole lot if you like. Okay, okay. Um, Our flagship beer, the main beer that we sell the most of, is Gamma Ray. It's a 5.4% APA, so an American-style pale ale. It means it has a lot of hops in it, but it's not quite an IPA. 
in terms of our core range and, and our beers that are available every day, there's Neck Oil, which is a session IPA. There's Smog Rocket, that's our smoked porter. We have Eight Ball, that's a rye IPA. We have Black Betty, that's a black IPA. So everything in the kind of very hoppy family in terms of what's available every day. But all of these sort of experimental projects, we do a lot of brewing with fruit and botanical ingredients and infusions and things like that. Have you got a current favourite? Uh, we did a beer last month that was um, called Peacherman. It was a collaboration brew with Heretic. They're out of California. Um, and it was a wit with peach puree and vanilla pods. And it was a really fun project and really kind of crisp and refreshing with a lot of complexity and aromatic sort of stuff going on. It was a good beer. So how do you come up with a concept for a new beer? Um, oftentimes it'll be a raw material that we're excited about that we want to work into a, a process somewhere and think about how we can use it and how we can get, yield the best flavor from it. Oftentimes we'll be inspired by another beer that we've had or a style of beer that we want to approach. Uh, <laughs> quite sadly, um, it could be because we have space in a particular vessel or in a particular barrel that we just want to make use of. And I also wanted to talk a little bit about the designs because you see a Beaver Town can on a shelf and it really sticks out. Can we just talk about how the designing process goes? Yeah, so, I mean, largely it's the sort of creative duo of Logan, our charismatic leader, and Nick Dwyer, who's our creative director. And they've known each other for a long time. They're good friends and they understand the way each other's mind works. So there's a lot of sort of secret language where only they know what they're talking about and at the end comes an amazing package for beer. How important do you think that the design element has been in terms of giving Beavertown an identity? Um, I think it's really important. It's important that people have something to attract them to the package in the first instance or attract them to the brand if they haven't tried it before. It certainly encourages me as a brewer to kind of keep the stakes high and make sure that there's a really challenging, interesting quality product inside that amazing package. Um, I did want to ask, do you think being a female head brewer in any way influences people's opinion of Beavertown at all? I hope so. I think so. I mean, people approach me at festivals and tell me that it means something to them and that it's important to them. And I'm excited about that. I'm excited if I can make it possible for more people to join an industry that I love. Um, I know that the kind of brewing world is enthusiastic and excited about sort of broadening its reach. And in terms of who is already in this industry, it's changed a lot. And even in the last five or 10 years, we've got a lot of female members of staff down on the floor in the production area, we've got women in all areas of this business, and we definitely have a lot of women drinkers that enjoy our products. So I think this industry is modernizing itself in lots of very good ways, and this is one of them. Does what you're doing here in terms of employing so many women affect the way that the marketing strategies work? We've always said that our beer is for everybody, and the, the sort of questions of how maybe more traditional or bigger breweries try to target female audiences by making pink beer or light beer or a fluffy beer or whatever. Um, we make pink fluffy beers, and they're delicious, and, and I think men and women enjoy them. And we make beers that maybe could be argued that they appeal to people who don't really drink beer, um, and that's just all part of the fun of, of the platform. There's not that many levers you can pull in, in brewing. You've got yeast and hops and malt, and you know, there's not a right lot you can do that's different. So to be able to do something that's a little bit different or special or explores a territory that kind of is more in the kind of wine direction or more in, in the spirits direction, or we've even got friends, brewers, who are who are pushing beers in directions that have more to do with milkshakes and desserts and things than, than beer, really, and that's all good fun as well. And I don't, I don't know statistically whether more women or men drink those beers, but I think in the modern 
craft beer culture, we'll call it, that there was much less of the sort of this is a man's drink or, you know, sexist pump clips or all that kind of old fashioned stuff, which was just marketing devices that used to be used and probably kept women away from the traditional drink. There's a lot about the traditional industry that does a disservice to the drinker. There's this sort of false dichotomy about how cask or sort of camera beers are the only real beers. And, you know, if the beer's in a keg, which most of our beer is dispensed from a keg, that it's going to be pasteurized and dead and flavorless and, you know, and and low value. Um, so we've had to sort of break down that. And so we as brewers can push that in a direction, better for the drinker, better for the quality of the product. You know, good beer costs more to make than industrial beer but the drinker wants to pay what it costs because they enjoy that product more and they see the value in it and I think those kind of mindsets and those sort of traditional ideas of what it is to be a publican to run a pub to be a brewer and run a brewery I think that that's the that's the dinosaurs talking was it difficult for you to be a woman trying to get into brewing? Obviously, you started off in the States, which has a slightly different attitude to here. Yeah, well, it wasn't easy in the States, actually, and I never properly got my foot in the door in the US because an entry-level brewing position was considered to be a man's role because it's quite physical. So when I came to the UK and I studied brewing and came out with qualification, I did manage to get my foot in the door, but I, I had to initially offer to work for free. I definitely had to prove myself that I had absorbed the sort of educational piece but also that I was willing to do the, the physical so do guys not have to offer to work for free um, I would imagine a, a fella coming out of a brewing program with qualification will probably get given a chance a bit more readily mm-hmm. it's not to say that it doesn't happen that you sometimes do have to but I feel like the experience I had at the first brewery I worked at was sort of mixed the existing members of staff sort of had to control their chivalrous instincts to sort of leap in and and help me with anything that I tried to lift or sort of keep me from breaking a fingernail and I had to continually convince them that I was there to do the job but in the end I mean the the first head brewer I worked for up in Yorkshire he was brilliant he came to respect me I respected him very much we were friends you know I knew that I was getting my fair chance at the role when he asked me to rewire a pump or you know jump in that dangerous vessel or do that that hideous stinky task and then I knew I was getting my fair chance and you know I stayed with them for four years and really had a good crack at being a traditional cascade brewer brilliant that's so nice yeah I definitely got a lot out of it I feel like I evolved as a human being having sort of yeah had to had to figure out a way to make it work Mm. um do you consider what's happening now in the UK to be uh, the craft revolution in inverted commas or do you think the revolution is about to come in terms of being someone in this industry I have a lot more options, places I can work, a lot more sort of colleagues that are enthusiastic about the same things that I am. There's definitely a revolution happening, but I love about this industry that we get to reinvent business. We actually get to have whatever structure, whatever leadership structure, whatever sort of team structure that we want to, as long as we're making good beer. And that gives you a lot of options about being quite alternative in business practice. And we're able to do a lot of good things for our staff and give them opportunities that they maybe wouldn't have in other businesses. And I think there's also then that other sort of way of being unique or alternative, which is how you choose to fund the business. I think the equity for punk scheme is really cool and interesting. Um, Prioritizing the consumer, prioritizing the drinker, bringing them into the experience of growing the business is absolutely the right way to do things, but quite alternative to the way businesses are typically run. Mm-hmm. 
And you get quite a few people who sort of say that when you get to that scale, it's no longer craft beer, craft being in inverted commas. What do you think of that? Is it still craft beer, surely? Well, in the US, the Brewers Association has a definition of craft beer that you can brew up to six million barrels a year, which is quite a lot more beer than BrewDog are making, and certainly a lot more than we're making. I think because it's a bit of a new movement, and maybe it has a different definition in the UK than it does in the US. Um, I'm really excited about the fact, for instance, that unfiltered beers seem to be the the sort of popular choice. We make unfiltered beers. Um, it used to be the common knowledge in the old industry that Pinbright absolutely filtered and pasteurized was the only beer a consumer would accept in Britain. So the idea that people are interested in drinking unfiltered beers, we don't have to strip out all that flavor by filtering. We don't have to, you know, kill it by pasteurization. I'm really excited about that. And I think if we can get more people into the fold of these these kind of more more natural, more creative brews, that, uh, that's absolutely craft brewing. I mean, can we talk about um, gimmicky beers versus your staples? Uh, for me, if there's anything slightly weird in it, on a menu, I'm like, yes, I will try weird <laughs> salami beer. Why not? Um, so, yeah, is it important that people are experimenting? Are there people that are maybe experimenting too much and not quite nailing the staples? Oh, I think there's probably a balance, and I guess it's down to what each brand wants to be known for or chooses to emphasize. Um, I think for us it's been an advantage that we invested early on in being seen as consistent quality-wise, and so people can trust that the product is going to be good quality. We had to invest a lot as well to make sure that we were consistent in terms of availability because there was a lot of like feast and famine really in our early days where we had a bit of beer, we sold it all, we had no beer, everybody calls us up, sorry we don't have any. And still it's really hard, we tell a lot of people no because we just we don't have any more room to grow on this site, we are maxed out. Um, but being able to be consistent and reliable is important on a quality level and so that people can trust you. But you also still have to push push the boundaries and do something interesting. So when you've been um, developing any new recipe, has there been any sort of flavor combination that you're like, do you know what, this just doesn't work? What was the, what was the standout one? <laughs> I did have a weird idea once that I thought um, I could work tomatoes into a beer and I could tried, <laughs> tried a couple of different like substrates for the fermentation when I did a, a stout and a, a pale it didn't really work out either way I like tomatoes it also feels like it should work no one day I'll nail it it's an obsession the Bloody Mary IPA Mm -hmm. exactly yeah exactly shove a bit of Tabasco in there as well oh that that would work I think yeah (laughs) if that's the secret ingredient I'd like to patent that right now okay 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 (laughs) full credit oh I love listening to that Jen seems really cool I'm actually really good I couldn't be there for that one yeah, it, it was amazing. I had a, a, such a fun time talking to her. But those gooseberries would not have sourced themselves, Lucy. That is true. <laughs> so following on from that chat I had with Jen, we wanted to explore how else the industry is trying to diversify its consumer base. And we don't mean by just attracting more women. We mean by attracting more drinkers generally. Back in the day, if I said beer festival to you, it would probably conjure up an image of a large group of portly older gentlemen. But that image is changing. And our next guest is one of those who's helping to make that happen. Earlier this week, we met up with Neil, the marketing lead from There's a Beer for That. If you've never heard of There's a Beer for That, here's Neil to tell you exactly who and what they are. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. 
That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. There's a beer for that is basically the campaign that was set up by Britain's Beer Alliance. Um, also from this year, uh, you have uh, the British Beer and Pub Association are very active in it. The whole premise of There's a Beer for That is to reignite Britain's love of beer. Um, it's the national drink of Britain, obviously, as an Irish person, it's a great person to give the job to. It, it's important to get one campaign that the whole of the industry can get behind, which is what There's a Beer for That is. Who have you been targeting um, from the start of this campaign? Well, really, we've. when I joined, we had quite a broad target. We were literally looking at anything from 18, so legal drinking age, right up to maybe 55-year-olds, uh, both men and women. Uh, we, we certainly didn't, uh, didn't look to target one in particular. We kind of tightened that a little bit now in the past year to maybe 35 to 50. And why? Because they're affluent. Um, they may have left beer, not completely, but certainly their consumption of beer may have dropped. Um, they might have moved into wine or spirits and we just want to show them the, the beauty and the diversity, versatility and quality around beer once again. We love to see the industry move away from uh, barbecue, beaches and, and babes. Sorry for the expression, but it's, it's literally that's the kind of advertising we've had and start to talk about the quality, diversity and versatility and the heritage of, of beer. And it's, it's pure natural ingredients that are in. There's only four ingredients in beer. So how have you been reaching those people? Through multiple campaigns, we have um, we have a really strong social campaign um, through our content campaign via Facebook um, and our, our Twitter campaign, where we're very active on both of those. We also have um, a, a direct mail campaign as well. So between those three, we're actually talk to, talking directly to about 250,000 people a week. We have a 67% open rate on our mail, which is ridiculous. High. Is it not really difficult to not be preaching to the already converted to actually target those people who maybe at the moment aren't that interested in beer? It, yes and no. It depends on the language you use. Um, we've been very careful to not refer to hop bombs and forward hopping and American IPAs versus British IPAs, but actually just to develop um, a style-led discussion, which hasn't happened before. If you look at wine, they've done it very well. They talk about red, white and rosé. We have, we've looked and we developed style guides that actually break down some barriers and actually make it easier to enter into the market. You could have 126 different styles of beer in the UK. We have narrowed that down to probably eight. So within that, we have sub-styles, but we're just trying to explain and bring people into the category and give them some confidence. Um, are things changing? Is, is what you're doing making a difference? And are those changes really focused on major cities or is it happening everywhere? 
I think it's happening everywhere. I wouldn't think we're London centric because, for example, I was at an event in Stockport and we have a program called Beer Club Live. Great event. It's a hosted event where we have five or six courses of beer and food. And they had 42 people paying £25 a head at that event. And I would say 50% were women. And it's just, it's small measures of beer against great food and somebody talking as to why they, they work. So I had a chat with Jane Payton and she mentioned that maybe it's it's the glassware at fault sometimes because actually a big hunk of a pint isn't appealing to some women. I completely agree with my great friend Jane. She and I have discussed this before. Um, I've worked in the continent in the industry quite a lot and they're so far ahead of us. If you go to Belgium or France, you can get 25, 33 CLs, 50 CLs. And that's where we, I would love to see this country going because you have the imperial measurement system here. We're stuck with half pints and thirds of a pints, which are getting more prevalent. So I completely agree with that. A pint is not the best way to drink a beer. All the quality cues start to lessen, it gets warmer, it even gets a little bit stale depending on the weather and stuff. So if I was recommending, I would always try and go for smaller measures and smaller glasses. But when you're at home, and I've said this to friends of mine, to create events at home, there's nothing like coming in. I've done this myself. People arrive at the house, you've got champagne flutes filled with a wit beer, which has got that beautiful white effervescence about it. It's gorgeous, a welcome drink there. And then you're using your wine glasses to serve porters and ales and whatever else you're using, depending and what you're matching and it creates some great fun and conversation. Yeah, because it's very well established with the wine industry that different styles of wine, not even just white, red, rosé, but different styles within those styles uh, kind of have different glassware with them. But it's just not the kind of thing that you see, really, and certainly not in, in restaurants, maybe yeah, slightly more so in, in beer bars. But I've seen the change in, in the UK over the last couple of years. I'm, I'm living in the UK, God help it, eight years now. And I've seen the difference in getting branded glassware. You know, the global brewers to the regional brewers, they're not choosing their glasses because they look great. They're choosing their glasses because they bring the best out in that particular style of beer. People need to understand that. So if it's in a chalice, it's in a chalice for a reason or a tall, uh, a tall fluted glass because it'll taper at the end to hold the flavour in and hold the head. There's lots and lots of reasons why they do it. It's not just an aesthetic issue. It's actually about bringing the most out of beer. So it's, I think it's improving, but we've a long way to go. So with the food and beer uh, element of it, why did you choose to kind of go so strongly down that route? We did a lot of research um, into different areas where we felt that we could concentrate on. We had four different buckets that, that we looked at. And the one that really jumped out at us was, was casual dining with food, uh, both at home and in the pub. People going out, having some great food and some great pubs, encouraging them to instead of having another drink um, that they would actually decide to have uh, have a beer with that or when they're at home it's something we still believe in we still believe we're only scratching the surface you still go into most pubs in the UK you're handed a wine menu but slowly but surely it's changing whether it's the chalkboards or actually matched menus that we encourage as well with our Dime with Beer programme. So you're not just focusing on the consumer, you're actually focusing on the industry as a whole. Everyone needs to change their habits. Everyone needs to change their habits. We have to change at the point of consumption and at the point of purchase to try and drive that behavioural change with people. Then when they actually get there, just to get that reminder right there, whether it's a drip mat or something on the shelf to say, look, hey, have an ale with your lasagna tonight rather than a glass of wine or whatever else you want to have. Is there quite a big sort of educational piece that needs to be done with with frontline staff in that sort of way then? 
It is a huge, huge job because obviously staff change. Um, but I think the onus is back on, on the trade to try and educate staff to increase quality of serve. So you don't get a warm glass, for example, you get the right glass and everybody gets annoyed if you, you know, you order a certain beer and it comes in a completely different glass. I certainly do. But then again, I'm not your <laughs> typical beer person. I drive my friends nuts. All the <laughs> what does the ideal situation for you guys look like, say, in a certain amount of time? I don't know what kind of time frame you guys put on things, but what does Beertopia look like? That beer has got back into consistent growth, that more people um, are drinking beer as part of their repertoire. They don't have to constantly drink beer, but they shouldn't discount it. So beer becomes part of the overall set of drinks that they that they will have, that they're not uh, saying, no, I'm not a beer drinker. I'm only a, a wine or a champagne or a cocktail drinker. And for me personally, I'd love to see more and more women um, coming into the category. I think the beer industry has done a terrible job in marketing beer to women. Um, we firmly believe in just telling women what the beer tastes like and putting it in front of them is what works. You don't need anything special, nothing else. It's amazing when you actually introduce the the full range of styles uh, to, to a great bunch of ladies say, at a beer club live and nine out of ten will veer towards porters and stouts because of the silkiness, the smoothness and the sweet the sweetness of a porter and sometimes the bitterness and the dryness of a stout. That's the difference between them. I'm asked that all the time as well. But I have found um, to, to my delight that actually even people that are saying I don't really like beer or women say but they'll actually go to a porter where guys that are lager drinkers would look at a porter with great fear and go oh I could never drink that it'll kill me uh, which is all again about hang on a second try it you know have a beautiful titanic plum porter stunning beer you know for example and that's w- that's how we break that and don't put pink fruit beers in front of them thinking that's what they want because it's not they want to have an IPA that's got that beautiful cascade hop through it that's got that fruity notes as much as anybody else so imagine I've only just heard about there's a beer for that how do I get involved the best way to get involved is, I think, follow us on, on Facebook and, and Twitter because you're just going to get this world of really interesting, engaging content. And we have now have about 60, 70 really great videos about beer styles and everything else. So this is how you will get educated. You'll also hear about our events. So if we're doing a beer club in your area, if you're signed up, you're going to know about that. And if you just want to get a little bit more information, you can use our, our Twitter app, Beer Match. So you can literally at beer for that, which is our Twitter handle, whatever dish you want to put in there with the hashtag beer match and you'll get an instant pairing of a style and a recommended brand. So if that doesn't help you on your way to, uh, you know, creating a brilliant occasion at home or when you're out in the pub, I don't know what will. Great stuff there from Neil. It's a really interesting campaign and his version of Beertopia sounds great. So, from drinking really interesting and exciting beers to drinking our strange concoctions... At the beginning of this episode, we tried our hand at brewing a gooseberry and mango saison. The idea was to dry hop with gooseberries and bottle with mango puree. However, when we came to bottle our beer, to our great surprise, it actually tasted really fucking good. So we boldly threw caution to the wind and made a last-minute change to the recipe, omitting the mango puree and just using priming sugar instead. As an aside, if anyone has any good mango puree recipes, we now have a really big tin of it. So do get in touch with us. Tweet us or Instagram us at WeMadeABeer. As with all of our beers, we've asked the guys at YouBrew to give us an honest review of what we've brewed up. Here's how our gooseberry saison went down. Now, this has got a large head on it. I don't know if we've over-carbonated it or if that's okay. No, it's fine. 
the more I drink it, the more I can taste something that's not normally in a saison. I like this. I'm going to say it now. We would stock this. Yeah. Oh, we don't so, even have to do the million-dollar question. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> there is something Moorish about this. I don't get to use that word that often, but yeah. it is that. It, um, I think it is those gooseberries. There's something like a little bit like, ooh, I kind of, I kind of want more of that. And would you want more gooseberry hit? Yes. If you've tantalised us like there's gooseberries in here, at first you're like, where is it? But. Um, I'm going to disagree with Matt. I think I want the mango hit that you're originally going to go with, yeah. Because I think gooseberries... I'm, I don't think I've ever heard anyone go apeshit over gooseberries. I <laughs> you missed Lucy talking about gooseberries when we were talking about what we were going to put in the beer. I just had a, oh, I just had a traumatic uh, childhood story about someone stealing all the gooseberries from our garden. <laughs> okay. Wow. <laughs> Somebody trying to brew a saison. <laughs> so, do you, so it's missing something, and the something that it's missing is that I, sweetness? I think, I think it's no. too cold. I think if you warm this sucker up, I just had like a, the bottom of this was really gooseberry. Mm-hmm. What you can see by this is you're getting better, which is good. But it's yeah, what you true. sort of hope yeah. for. <laughs> so actually, yeah. So after five brews, we can say you can make a brew that's actually like oh. an exceptional brew. This can is you, a great beer. I like it a lot. What about, what are the Wilf is getting slowly more positive about this yeah, yeah. beer. Because I'm getting drunk. Eight percenter, eight percenter. You'll also notice I start breathing more deeply into the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't think our microphone is ever going to recover from that heavy breathing. Thanks, Wilf. So, I have to say, I really like this beer. Me too. It's also accidentally super boozy, so you can't have too many, but it's got a really nice flavour to it. And Wilf is right, the longer we leave it, the better it gets. Next week is our grand finale. There's no Tash, and we're going to be doing all the beery research ourselves. We've actually chosen a bit of a weird one to end the series on too. The Milk Stout. Inspired by our chat with Neil from There's a Beer for That, we're basing our last episode around the beautiful relationship between food and beer. We'll find out some tricks to pairing food with beer, and we'll also chat to Julie from Toastale about their mission to turn food waste into delicious beer. Don't forget, our friends at YouBrew are offering We Made a Beer podcast listeners 20% off brew courses with the code YouBrew20. Just head to YouBrew.cc to book. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> I'm Andrea, founder of a boutique handbag brand, Andy, and this is why I switched to Shopify. I tried three other platforms prior to Shopify, and I remember my breaking point was when I would try to make one little change and my entire site would go down. With the drag and drop theme editor, we don't need to hire a developer to do any coding. Each theme is automatically optimized on mobile. It's incredible. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Go to shopify.com slash listen to take your business to the next level today. Mm-hmm. <laughs>